This show is brought to you by The Makery, the podcast network for makers. Welcome to the Full Blast Podcast. I'm Jeff Fader on the Makery Network, and let's just get into it. I'm already irritated. I'm extra irritated. I'm kind of pissed off, to be honest with you, and fine. What did you expect? You're going to say you're always pissed off. Well, I'm a little bit extra crispy today. Fine. Let's just get into it. So I had this whole show planned out. I was all ready to go. I was kind of, I had some stories to tell and I'm weaving it into some things and some future bits we're going to be doing. And I have some uh, a great story from one of our listeners, the first listener story, which is really, cra- it's a crazy story. I can't, get, wait, I can't wait to get to it. I was all fired up. I had a specific day I was going to go uh, use this, which is now the computer. I have to share the computer for the time being with my wife. She's now starting to work from home more often, so we I can only have a certain amount of days to prep for this show and have the computer to, to record, but you don't really care about that, and honestly, neither do I. So I was all ready to uh, record, which I'm doing right now, when I was planning on doing it, and I got some shitty news last night. Uh, some of you may know I'm a knife maker. I'm a custom knife maker. I have a small company called Fader Knives. And I make custom knives, mostly chef's knives, culinary knives, but I also do some other things. And I made a knife for someone very specific, very special, a friend of mine, um, and it was very exciting. We picked it out and made some changes and wanted to remind him of what he, his mother used to use. And there was, there was we special wood, and then I had these special uh, pieces from uh, of carbon fiber and pins and it was great and it, honestly 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 it was probably top 10 knives i've ever made one of my favorites it just all the transition it was a great fucking project and i was super happy about it and i wrapped it up special and i sent it in the mail and i was excited to to hear from him I, this particular guy was going to say something nice and i was or maybe not I'm, I, I'm what can i tell you i'm assuming i was just fired up for him so I sent him the tracking number and, uh, you know, he was all excited and, you know, he sent me things saying, do you know when it's going to come? And I'd given him the wrong tracking number to begin with. And then I squared that away. And then once I gave him the right tracking number, we figured out that it was going to be arriving yesterday. And then I got the message from, from the post office that, oh, your package has arrived. Your friend's package has arrived. Um, and then I sent him a message saying, oh, it's, it's ready to go. It's, they just dropped it off. And then an hour passes, and I hear, I've, it's not here. What do you mean it's not here? He's like, it's not here. I checked. I said, well, did you, did, did you check this room? It was in a, a building complex. Did you check this room? Did you, does it, he's like, well, this is the only places it could be, and it's nowhere to be found. And he says, and, and I've heard stories of, you know, packages being lost. He's like, maybe I should call the post office. And I said, well, I said okay, uh, but, you know. If they said it's scanned and it's been delivered, then, I mean, it's kind of out of their hands. So we kept on looking, and I said, well, talk to your neighbors. Maybe one of your neighbors grabbed it for you. And a couple hours pass, and I get the messages. It's gone. Somebody, somebody must have taken it. And this is the first time. I've been sending sculpture and knives and blacksmithing stuff and tools, and I used to do eBay all the time. I've never had something, and I know you're probably, some of you are thinking, well, shit, my shit gets stolen all the time. I'm telling you, I've had like a, such a good success rate with with the uh, post post office and priority mail and shipping all over the world. My wife's like, "Well, have you ever shipped to California?" I'm like, "Of course, all over California." I'm fucking bummed. He's steamed. He's not steamed at me, and he's not steam. He just sucks because you know he paid some money for this product, and um, he wrote and he wrote, "Oh, all your hard work, it's gone." And I and I just I get that pit in my stomach where I'm just like ah, so we're at a dilemma. What do you do? This is the dilemma. What do you do? I'll tell you what I did, but I want to think what you would do. Some of you would say, well, you know, you maybe you should you know just charge him again or you know blah blah. blah. Tell him the dilemma is: do you do you say to this guy, all right, well, it's out of my hands. It was in the post office. The post department, the post office took care of it. It was delivered. My job's done. You gave me my, the address. Or do you just say, or do you say, well, I'll make you another one. You just pay, you know, a discount. I, it sucks. And I felt like shit. 
But I decided that I just, I wanted him to have this knife, and I had enough material to make the exact same knife better. And I wrote to him and I said, I want you to have this knife. I will remake the knife on me. I just can't, I can't, I can't handle it. And I said, and I told him, I said, man, what we're going to do is you're going to give me an address where somebody can actually physically accept it. And it's this dilemma. And, I, and, I, and, I, and, it, and the dilemma comes down to how I feel. And I feel like I have to do this for, in order for me to feel good about myself. And that's my problem. Is I, It's almost like, you know, when I was a kid and my dad got me an ice cream cone and I'm walking down the street with an ice cream cone and I licked that ball of ice cream too hard and the fucking ice cream plopped onto the, onto the street. Then you're just like, fuck that ice. That ice cream's fucked right out of my cone. What am I going to do now? You can't look at the ice cream guy and say... Well, mister, can you replace this? He's going to say, sure, I'll replace it. Give me another $1.50. And then your, your opinion of the ice cream guy is spoiled. You're bummed out. Your dad's irritated. And it's just like, <sighs> so I want this guy to have a good experience. I want him to say, you know what? Fader is a stand-up guy. That was real nice for him to do that. Blah, blah, blah. It's, it's honestly, it's all I need to be able to sleep at night. And so that's what I, that's my dilemma now. It just irritates me. I already started the knife. Hopefully, you know, he might even find it. We might have just been misdelivered, whatever. I'm just losing my mind just because I, I have some sort of, I have some set, you know, issues I need to deal with. But fine. I made the decision. I just said, I'm going to make him a new knife. So what that leads me to is I need you to DM me your dilemmas. Because that's going to be one of the bits we start. It's going to be, I want a lot of our um, participation from the listeners. I already got a few great uh, dilemmas from, one dilemma's from a guy, it's, I love this dilemma, the best, one of the best written dilemmas I've ever gotten. I want your dilemmas. And they can be fake, they don't have to be real. They can be about anything, that doesn't matter to me. Just send me your dilemmas and we'll be like King Solomon trying to figure out What's the right way to go about it? We'll kind of look at both sides and you understand. So send me your dilemmas. Go to the Full Blast Podcast on Instagram. Follow me along. We can communicate through DMs. You can send me your dilemmas. For now, we're going to do some new things coming up. We're going to figure this thing out. And pretty soon, we're going to be getting, uh, we'll have some guests. We're going to fool around. And like I said, thank you once again to Craig Lockwood of Chop Knives, who's also the main guy here at the Makery Network. I appreciate you. I appreciate the hell out of you. I thank you for allowing me to have my own show, and it was sight unseen. You didn't ask me for what's it going to be about. This is going to be the Makery Podcasting Network. We, what are you going to make, and what's the Full Blast Podcast going to be about? You gave me free reign, and I appreciate it because... I know that there's a lot of great podcasters on here. There's going to be a lot of fun podcasts from makers. And I technically am a maker, but this podcast is going to be, I don't know what we're going to be making. I don't know we're going to be making anything. I'm, not, I'm sure as hell not going to be making you take notes. I don't want to do that. I don't want to be that helpful. In regards to knife making, we'll talk about knife making, blacksmithing, and sculpture, and that food at some point. But right now, I just want to fool around. So... With that said, I'm giving Craig Lockwood of Chop Knives, the founder of the Makery Network, the lead man on Knife Talk, the number one knife-related podcast in the world, I want to give you thanks. I want to give you thanks, appreciation, and my friendship. And now I want to break your balls. All right, so when we figured this out a few months ago, I'm talking to you from the future. This is episode three, and we haven't even launched episode one, so you can have a little bit of perspective. I suggested we do this, and he liked the idea, and I was really, I've been pushing this for a while because I needed a producer to do all the heavy lifting. I just wanted to press record and be done with it, and Craig was my guy. Craig, I worked on him, and I worked on him, and I worked on him, and he, he, he made this jump to the Makery Network, and I'm I'm appreciative. I'm a little remora swimming along this, this giant Welsh shark. Thank you. So now it's time to break your balls. So we're getting this all squared away. 
And um, he told me, this is what we're going to do. This is what we're going to do. This is what I need. It's going to be very simple. No editing. This is my podcast. Don't get edited. And he said, well, what we, I need you to do is I need you to pick a lead, a lead in song, the lead in song to the show. And we're, I'm going to send you to a, to a website that, se- that sells copyright free, copyright free music. And then you pick something. And then what happens is he doesn't have to pay like a, you know, an unpaid an agreement. You know, he ain't going to get, you know, he ain't going to get street fighting man from the Rolling Stones, which is what I would like. But, you know, let's be real. That ain't happening. So he sends me this website. And I have to scroll through it. And, and, and I'm just like, oh, my God, there's a million songs in here. And I'm clicking and going and clicking and going and clicking. I must have spent three hours listening to these goddamn songs. And none of them are really speaking to me. And, and the other thing is, is like, what do, what, what do you mean speaking to me? Who do you, th-? and then as I'm listening, I'm thinking, ah, oh, this doesn't really fit who I am. And, the, and, I'm, and, I, and then when, as soon as my mind says that, the other part of my mind says, who the fuck do you think you are? That you need a, you need a theme song. You're so important that you need a theme song. Don't you think that, don't, don't you think that's obnoxious? You don't think that's obnoxious? You need a theme song? Oh, this doesn't represent you? This music doesn't represent who you are? Ugh, awful. So that was the that was the tumult that it was going on in my house. My fucking brain was beating me over the head with, oh, I don't think this song is going to really kind of mix with my, you know, the, the tone of this show. Oh, Mr. Tone of the Show. All right, so then I finally picked something out after probably just being like, this is fine. And I sent it to him. Send it to Craig. I said, all right, here's what I want. And Craig writes me back the next morning, because he's in France and I'm in New York, so there's this big time lag. And he goes, hey, this is a four-minute song. You picked a four-minute song. You need to pick a sting. You need to pick a sting for the opening of your show. Well, what's a sting? A sting is a short little 20-second, 30-second little all-encompassing little song for the beginning of whatever. So he sent me to a new page, and it's all like, you know, this, you can pick your, you know, is, do you want it to be country music? Do you want it to be, do you want it to have a, 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 a longing vibe? How about a sexy vibe? How about a 1970s rock vibe? And I'm just like looking at these guys in filters and I'm like, do you, what about, what about, uh, what about leggy? You want a leggy vibe? What's a fucking leggy vibe? All these strange things. And I'm going through them like, Ugh. so after another two hours, I just I fucking picked what you're what you heard now and it's like I mean it is not it's not optimal and it isn't Craig's fault and it I don't know if it's my it's my fault but I want to I just want to I just want to I want to as a true narcissist I want to blame others for my own shortcomings see so you understand so I picked this song and it's the lead song for our you know, the Full Blast podcast. I needed something that kind of, not just like, it had to be, get you fired up for the Full Blast podcast. It couldn't just be this like, you know, harp music or like, you know, like a little, like a little, relax. I needed something to fucking kick you in the balls and then your toe goes up the ass. That's what I needed. I need a full contact between the balls, toe up the ass song. And apparently, in my dumb mind, this is what it was. This is the name of the song is "The D- The Dead and the Diseased." No, 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 not the dead and de- the dead and diseased or dead and deceased, something like that. It's fine. I like it. You know, I I, I mean, we're not going to do much better. That's that's the bottom line. But at the same time, it's like this is what you have to deal with. You know, so whose fault is this? It's my fault. It's clearly not. Craig's fault. I just, I wanted to get, you know, get him all his, the stuff he needed and blah, blah, blah. And, and the reason why this is ultimately my fault is because I have a very stunted growth. I have a stunted relationship with music. I don't really have a good relationship with music. And a lot of it has to do with growing up, uh, my father. And I know what you're saying, oh God, here's another Jeff growing up and having some sort of trauma. Just relax. This is the, I'm trying to backload all these podcasts until we have a little bit of continuity so you know what the game plan is and I can start to feed you guys in. But now I'm filling you up with these fucking nonsense stories. You understand. Fine. Go listen to fucking Chris Zepp's. Go listen to Chris Zepp's episode. This is Go listen to Chris Zepp and, and, and Paul Pinto and Derek from Alden. Go listen to their podcast. Because right now I'm telling you a story, all right? 
So when I was a kid, my dad was much older than me. My dad had been married a couple times, a couple, three, four times. And his, his second marriage, he had two daughters who were my sisters, who were my half-sisters. And they're much older than me. The both of them, one thing, one of them is like 17 years older than me, and one of them is like 20 years older than me. So what happened was, was he, she grew up, they grew up in the, in the late 60s, early 70s. Uh, well, their formative years, like their teenage years, they, it was like in the middle of the 60s into the 70s. And I was born and they were in the 73. So they were like, you know, 17 or something like that. So they were ensconced in a time where music represented what the youth was going through, whether it be, um, whether it be like the political climate, whether it be injustice and oppression and stuff like that. So the music really represented the sense of change. And it was like, we're tired of these old motherfuckers doing our thing, and it hasn't, not much has changed right now by PS. So they had a very, um, they were very interested in, both my sisters liked uh, the Beatles, they liked the Rolling Stones, and they liked counterculture, and they were both heavily into protest, and they were very strong, you know, liberated and, 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 and excited and angry young people, which is pretty normal at the time. So I, I guess my father saw that as a bit of disobedience. And um, so he always felt that, you know, once again, remember when I told you about narcissists, they like to blame other, blame other people and the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree. So instead of him thinking, well, let me just see if I can have a relationship with these kids and, and then we can see what's going on and then I can, we can talk and, you know, have a kind of meeting of the minds. He just basically said, they're not being, they're being disobedient to me and it can't be because I'm their father and it can't be because of the way I'm parenting them. It ha there has to be an outside source that's making them disobedient and to me, which is unacceptable. And uh, he decided to blame popular music. He actually... Funny enough, he blamed Mick Jagger for most of society's ills. So growing up, when I came onto the scene, when I was on our marriage number three, something like that. I mean, when I say something like that, I'm I'm pretty sure it was marriage number three. There was we're not gonna get into it, but you know, you think three's the charm, but think again. So yeah, four. Yeah, we can go into that down the line. We're not we're not there yet. So when I was born, I was the only son, and my dad really kind of held me fucking tight to his pant leg because he was not going to let society change the way I do, the way he does things and the way I do things. So he's going to have me under his thumb from the get-go. And what will happen is, is as long as he can kind of keep me under his thumb, then one of the things he's going to do is it's going to be keeping the way the fuck from popular music. So at a very young age, I really wasn't allowed to listen to popular music. I couldn't listen to PLJ. I couldn't listen to Z100, which were the two top pop stations in, in New York. When MTV came out, all my friends were watching MTV. I wasn't allowed to watch MTV. I was completely, completely banned from popular music. So I think that it stunted me. And I couldn't, when my friends would talk about Billy Joel or whatever, or the music from, the, you know, England and the, you know, New Wave and all this, I had no, I had no understanding nor appreciation. I think when you stunt that, what happens is you lose the love of music and you just whatever. So he used to blame society's ills, even when, as he got older, he used to blame society's ills on, you know, popular music. He would say that uh, he, I remember sitting at the table for, when this is when he was, you know, he had passed, he passed away about 12 years ago or something like that. I don't, 11, I don't remember. I don't, it's probably a reason. There's probably a reason to that. He, uh, I remember sitting down with him and he says, have you heard of this Tupac Shakur? You heard about this guy? He sounds like trouble. They, and then this was his move. Anytime he would ask you about someone and he made his decision up, he would say, they should lock him up next to Mick Jagger. They should share a cell together. So every, in his mind, Mick Jagger is the ringleader of all these, you know, ne'er-do-wells and popular musicians and, and anyone who had tr anyone involved with popular culture, Mick Jagger was the ringleader. They had to lock him up and sit him next to Mick Jagger, put him together. And the, the irony of ironies is, is by the time I got to high school, my parents got divorced. And as my parents got divorced, the 
the uh, the long arm of uh, a, you know parental oppression just like disappeared. I was like a wild child living in New York City by myself for the most part. So music, I had to you know catch up on music and get a great understanding for music, but I never really got a love for it. And I just remember once I discovered the Rolling Stones after hearing my dad bitch about Mick Jagger all the all these years, I started to think. What's wrong with what's wrong with Mick Jagger? And I would start to listen to Rolling Stones. I'm like, I don't know what he's talking. And that's when I first started to maybe he was right. I first started to realize my dad wasn't right. This fucking Rolling Stones is fantastic. So I think that that you know the funniest part is is maybe that was his. He accidentally uh, spoiled me to his own you know machinations of staying away from the Rolling Stones. So now Rolling Stones are my favorite band. So I had a really stunted part of, of music, and as a lot of young kids do, in school you get the opportunity at a certain age to play an instrument. Uh, at my school, we had the opportunity to try out for all these instruments, and then you could play an instrument, and you could also be on the orchestra, which is a kind of a big deal. So I kind of didn't realize this until I was in about the third grade, that my grandfather, my dad's father, was a big deal cellist. He was a big deal cellist. He played in the New York Philharmonic. The stories of his position are becoming a little bit, I don't know where he was. And I, I was under the impression that he might have been the first chair. He was a high level guy as a cellist in the New York Philharmonic. We had photographs of him with our, his, his conductor for a while was Arturo Toscanini, who was one of the greatest uh, conductors uh, in, the, in the world at the time. He was super famous. He became famous for, uh, he was an Italian conductor. He actually, um, he was uh, against Mussolini at the time to the point where uh, he played for the Mussolini. He, they wanted him to play for Mussolini, but you had to play the fascist national anthem, and he refused to play the fascist national anthem because he was against fascism and Mussolini and his and his thugs beat the shit out of him. So he was, and you know, this is a tough guy. Tuscany was a tough guy and he, and he was a well-renowned um, concert um, conductor. So my grandfather played with him and it was a, you know, it was a very, I mean, it was incredible. My grandfather was a cellist in the New York Philharmonic, which is an incredible feat. Must have been very tiring. Must have been very stressful. Must have been a lot of pressure. Must have been a lot of competition, but he did it. And he was a, he was a nationally uh, renowned or globally renowned cellist in that Philharmonic. So you can imagine the pressure for young, dumb Jeff to play the cello was high. So I also wanted to be, you know, I wanted to, you know, make my dad happy. and Maybe I could play the cello. They offer the cello. Maybe I should try out for the cello. So I didn't really know much about the cello, but I just knew it's got to be in the blood. Now, obviously, these things are, that's the way these things work. We're in the blood. So I try out for the flute. Nah, I don't really like that. And I have clarinet, so it seems like a lot of work. And and I was like, I want to try out for the cello. In my mind, thinking because the faders are cellists. And my my dad played the cello too. This is gonna be three generations of cellists. It's gonna be we're gonna be in the blood, and it's gonna be great. The problem is, is I didn't really know what a cello was. And I didn't realize it's this giant thing that you you lug around with you all the time. So I tried out for everything and I they wanted me to know what I thought, what I loved the most. And I, I just was like, I tried everything. I was like, no, this isn't good. A trumpet, no, this isn't, this won't do. And then the oh, here comes the cello. Big cello, put it between my legs, and I was thinking, oh, this is all these, the blood is the cello blood is flowing through my veins. The cello blood, I'm, I was meant to play the cello. Third grade, fourth grade, yeah, yeah. All of a sudden, I'm fucking Yo-Yo Ma. So, yeah, that's some of you guys don't know who that is. Don't worry. Don't worry, guys. I'll get you back. I'll get you back. So uh, I started practicing, and I hated it. <laughs> right out of the shoot, I thought, I thought, wait, where, where's all these, where's all this, ge this genetics? Where's all the genetics? The genetics are supposed to kick in by now. Well, the genetics didn't kick in. And I had a teacher who did not like me. This woman was a large, imposing woman who uh, was a strict teacher. And she 
talked to me in a way that really didn't make me want to play the cello very much. She, you know, she was, she was, uh, and I didn't understand why. I didn't understand why. I just thought, this woman seems a little bit strict. Third grade, fourth grade, playing the cello. I had to schlep this goddamn thing all over New York on a bus. I had to go on the, I took the public bus to school and on, on practice days, I'd have to bring the goddamn cello with me. You schlepping this goddamn cello onto a fucking school bus, onto a, not a school bus, a, a city bus, and then schlep it up to school. Ugh, awful. So she would start saying stuff to me that like, um, how come your fingers aren't, your, your brain isn't talking to your fingers? Your brain, Jeffrey, your brain isn't talking to your fingers. Why aren't you, isn't your brain talking to your fingers? And I'm thinking to myself, what is she talking about? Brain talking to your fingers. They have, there was one little trick that I got with the strings. You could put little dots, little colored dots under the strings. And then you could transcribe the dot colors to the notes on the paper. So then you know what you're doing. All right, so you have the strings and then you know, okay, green, blue, red, green, blue, red, green, blue, red. And then all of a sudden, okay, yeah, now we're talking. Now I'm playing the cello. I got the dots all over the insides of my fucking cello. And it looks like, you know, it looks like, um, it looks like a light bright under, under the frets of, uh, uh, by the frets of my cello. And I'm thinking, fine, I can do this. So I would, and I was so embarrassed because I would ask my dad, can you just help me with, I'd get home, can you help me figure out the notes to the colors? And then he would transcribe them all. And I would, and it got to a certain point where as I was growing, well, the, the teacher didn't like me. She didn't like me. And she was just a little bit, she had an edge to her and I just didn't know why. And then um, it turns out, uh, one of two stories where my mother comes in and with all of her intentions, best intentions, gets me. She, she fucking put the, she accidentally stuck a knife through my back. So apparently when she first, when my mother first met the teacher, I had been practicing for a while and I'd already been like, and, and I wasn't practicing at home because I was like, this fucking thing sucks. I'm supposed to know it by now because it's in the blood. So apparently my mother went up to the teacher and introduced her. Hi, Mrs. Fader, and hi, how are you? And I just want you to know how happy we are because, you know, Jeff comes from a long line of cellists. And Ms. Streetman looks at her. Oh, I said his name. That's all right. She'll be all right. She's all right. She'll be all right about that. She says, oh, is that so? And, I, and my mother says, yes, oh, yes. Oh, yes. His grandfather was a cellist in the New York Philharmonic. And it was like that. And then... My teacher turns to me. She goes, is that right? And then it was like, it was all over. She just rode me into the ground. And says, this kid, the, you know, the grandfather is a cellist in the New York Philharmonic. And then dipshit is putting like, you know, colored buttons underneath the strings. because You can't read the fucking notes. So that was that. And then as I grew, kid grew into it, I did the recitals and I just like didn't really get into it. And then I did it out of, you know, the respect to the family. And I just kept trudging through, but I didn't love it. I was doing it because I thought my father loved it, but really I just wanted him to love it and I didn't love it, but fine. So I ended up going into the, I get into the orchestra and then the conductor was a great conductor. And I just like, I would, I started to have to do not only my practice music for my class, for, for the teacher, but I do the practice music for the, 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 the orchestra conductor and that just became very just like ugh. plus all the homework plus I was getting my you know you know how it is it's just like one's enough enough and, and I got to the point where it's just like I I like girls I like girls and I don't want to do this anymore I want to go I don't I want to meet girls so what I started to do is I started to not practice and then I started to not practice and then I realized that if you take your all right so if you're playing the cello with your left hand is on the you know the fret and you're you know you're putting your fingers down and then on the with your right hand you're using the bow which is that long thing with the horse hair on it and then you're you know rubbing it up against the strings and then it's making the noise but if you're in an orchestra and there's like 10 other cellists and you just lift that bow an eighth of an inch or a three sixteenths of an inch. See, we're maker podcast. We're using you know measurements. You can just lift it up at just a little bit off the strings, and as long as you're just in rhythm with the bow, you're fucking doing it. And because you're doing it, because you're faking it. 
So I realized that faking it's great because then the conductor can't hear that you're fucking it up. So I faked it. And I would raise the bow up just a hair, and I'd make sure I knew where which direction we were going in. And with the fingering, it didn't really matter as long as I was close. I was faking it. And it was not excellent. And all I could think of the whole time is my grandfather in the New York Philharmonic flying above me. His spirit is flying above me and just looking at this cello with these red and yellow and green and blue dots and his, and then the bow. And so he can't read music. And then the bow is floating above the strings pretending he's playing. And all I could think of is, God damn it, that fucking ghost is going to come and you're going to get me. And as he should, as my grandfather got older and he wasn't playing in the Philharmonic, he would teach up-and-coming cellists and he was very strict, and he was very strict, and I didn't realize that he was so strict, and my father had wanted to do the same thing. He wanted to get, he was the youngest of three, he wanted to get the love of his father, so he thought, I'm going to play the cello just like my dad, we're going to be, and I guess grandpa ran him into the ground. Grandpa was not known for being a, uh, a uh, encouraging teacher. The story of his last student was he was teaching the student how to play. The student might have said something of, if you know, we're going to talk about, you know, in the vernacular of the 1920s, you're going to say, you got to do this. And he's going to say, yeah, 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 I know all about it. Something like that, whatever. I know all about it. I don't know what they would what a kid would say. That, oh, yeah, 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 I know, Gramps. I don't know what he would say. But he basically, you know, talked back to my grandfather who was teaching him how to play. And as the story goes, Grandpa threatened to take the cello and smash it over this kid's head. That was the end of Grandpa teaching cellists. So I can only imagine what my poor father had to deal with. And then now I'm trying to like do, be in there too. Meanwhile, there is nobody, you know, really looking over me and saying that's not you're not doing it right. They're just being like, just let him do it. So as we were playing, I started to, you know, I started to notice that the conductor was, you know, starting to notice that we, you know, it was very clear. It was very clear that we were, most of us were faking it because a lot of us were in the same boat. We were getting a little older. We just wanted to be, you know, we were always an all boys school and we wanted to be done with this and meet with girls and, you know, and uh, he kind of tightened the reins with us and, and he stopped everything and he says, I just want the cello section to know. I know some of you guys are faking it. I know you're doing the fake because I've been at this game for a long time. And we're like, well, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know what you're talking about, sir. And he says, don't worry. I'm going to talk to your teacher. We're going to all, the cello section is going to go and we're going to have a private lesson as a group. And it was a fucking disaster. And we met, the, the cello teacher was furious. The fellow teacher was humiliated. And it seems as though... I might have been the ringleader in the faking it game. So I show up with my fucking practice cello. There's dots everywhere, which is not supposed to be. It's for children. This is for, for little kids. And for, you know, fourth grade, fifth grade, you're not supposed to be having, you're not supposed to have dots all over the place. And the great and exalted grandson of William, St. William Fader of the New York Philharmonic is a ringleader for a bunch of fakers. So we got our asses handed to us, and um, it was really, really unfortunate. And I found out later, I found out later that one of the reasons why I got such fritz from this teacher, and this is another, this is the part two of what my mother had done. And I mean, I'm not blaming her. Obviously, I didn't practice. Obviously, I, I didn't progress. Obviously, I was never meant to be a cellist, but apparently my mother was calling to change a, uh, a lesson time or something like that, and she called and left a message on the answering machine. Now, I found out this later. This is early on. This is early on. So this is also right after she told my teacher that I was the grandson of this great and famous cellist. And, you know, I'm looking like a total douchebag anyway. So one of the other things my mom did was she was calling to leave a message for the cello teacher to, ch you know, change a, change a time for my lesson. 
So apparently back in the day, you know, you have old school answering machine messages, you had a little tape and then you press the button and then you'd leave a message. And, you know, some people would leave these goofy, you know, messages like, you know, you'd have the dog, me and Rusty the dog, say, leave a name or message and we'll get you back at the, to- the drop of the bell and leave your name and number. You know, you leave them that voicemail message and some people's are so hard. Well, my teacher apparently like played, she, I guess she played like five or six, like second, you know, like she did a stinger. She just like Craig asked me for a sting for this podcast. My teacher left a sting for her voicemail message and apparently it wasn't any good. It was like, something. this is so-and-so, leave your name and number. You know, it was just like, you know, she was playing, you know, obviously she was playing the cello next to the answering machine. She pressed the button, played their fucking thing, sung in, you know, did the stinger, the cello stinger, and then leave your name and message. Fine. Okay. So you can think about it and be like, you roll your eyes and it's over with. One of the wonderful things about my mother is she does what we refer to as shooting from the hip. That means she says what she wants to say when it pops into her head. Some people would say, oh, she has no filter. I say shooting from the hip because shooting from the hip means you're just like, you're pulling out of the sheet, you're just shooting forward. And it's like, there's not a lot of thought. So no filter and shooting from the hip are kind of different. No filter is like, I'm a, I'm abashedly saying this because I don't care. And shooting from the hip is just like almost Tourette's. It's almost Tourette's. It's just like you're compelled to say something right out of the box. And I've done that. That's probably why the way I am the way I am is because my mother is the same way. Shooting from the hip. She likes to shoot from the hip. Sometimes she'll say that to me. She says, you really like to shoot from the hip. Like there's no, you know, you don't have any airspace. So the cellist answering machine goes off. And please, you know, leave your name and message at the end of the tone. Beep, beep, beep. And my mother says... That is the worst answering machine message I've ever heard in my life. This is Kathy St. John Fader. Could you please give me a call back at 212 blah, 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 blah. My son Jeffrey needs to have a cello lesson changed. Goodbye. She left a message insulting this woman's message. What kind of maniac calls a woman up listens to her message, critiques her message, and then leaves a serious message. Only a complete maniac would do that. And that's one of the reasons why my my cello teacher disliked me intensely. She would get so fucking mad at me, I couldn't understand. And one of the reasons why is because my sweet dear mother, who shoots from the hip, poisoned the situation by saying that I was coming from famous cello stock. And the other one is, she said, that's the worst voicemail message I've ever heard in my life. Oh, now do something for me. You understand. These things, you know, these things, you know, that's what happens. So I can't blame myself for being a bad cellist. But, you know, when you're rowing a boat, you kind of need somebody to help you row a little bit. And, And they weren't rowing, they were rowing against the situation. So the cello didn't really work out very well. And I got to the point we had, uh, we had, I'll tell you one last thing. I'll tell you one last thing about it. And then we're going to get off this thing. The, the orchestra was, I mean, we were fine. We were just, you know, what, what junior high school orchestra is any good anyway. So we were fine. We weren't like, you know, we weren't known for it. But we played, you know, concerts and stuff like that. And the the only good thing was we would we would play the standards like Star Spangled Banner and this and that and the other things. So we could kind of like every year we wouldn't have to learn too many new things. So I, I got proficient enough that I could hit every other note. I wasn't doing any solos for God's sakes. Thank God. But we actually had a connection with the uh, Bush family. The president, the at the time, the vice president, George, uh, which one? George, the original. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't George W. Bush. When, I mean, it, they, until he came on the scene, George Bush was the father. So George Bush was the vice president for Ronald Reagan. We had the opportunity. I'm not 100% sure. There might have been some, you know, I have no idea. But we were going to go down to Washington, D.C. and play for vice president George Bush. We were going to play a concert for him. And it was very exciting. It was a big deal. Big deal. 
And I remember being excited because I'd never been to Washington before. And then this is going to be a big deal. And blah, 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 blah. We're practicing Star Spangled Banner, Star Spangled Banner. Da, 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 da. And I'm not like, I'm not making, I'm starting to like, you know, get into it. I'm still faking, but I've taken off all those little colored stickers because, you know, it's just like enough is enough. They've made the decision it's enough is enough and blah, blah, blah. So we're practicing and I'm and I'm just like, oh God, I wish this, I hope this, I hope this cellist fader DNA comes through because I, I, I need a fucking win right now. I need a win right now. And it really never did. And we got down to Washington and we're getting in this outdoor auditorium, outdoor uh, amphitheater and no George Bush. It was his wife, Barbara Bush. Barbara Bush was there and it was raining and... We, it wasn't covered, and we were all covered in rain, and it was really, it was lackluster because it was just like, you know, outside in the rain with your fucking cello, and, you know, his old his wife was there, Barbara Bush. She was perfectly nice. And then they invited us to the vice president's home where the vice president and, the, and his wife stayed, and they were going to have a big barbecue for us. So we showed up. And all they served us was the shittiest hot dogs and RC Cola. And we're like, this is what we came here for? A rain-soaked, we didn't even get to meet the vice president. And we saw his old wife. And we're wet. And we're getting a couple of shitty hot dogs and RC Cola. This is, this is what this all comes to? This is the glory? But at, later in life, I started. That, my friends and I would bitch. We're like, yeah, it gave us fucking, you know, shitty warm RC cola and ballpark franks. We all know that those are the worst. And all I could think of now is, you know what? Good for them. And George W. Bush, I think he showed up at the end. George, not George W. Bush, the first, the father showed up and we played. Uh, I think we were playing on his in his backyard and played a frisbee or something like that. And he came for a picture. But then, you know, we were bitching about the hot dogs and the fucking warm RC Cola. But then now I start to think, you know what? That's taxpayer dollars for you. They made us pay for the hotels and they gave us the shittiest and cheapest food possible. And I'm glad because if they put out a big spread for us now, it's a eh, mismanagement of money. So with that said, I'm trying to backfill all these episodes because we're getting ready for new ones. And I want your help. I want your crazy stories. Obviously, my life isn't that exciting, but I tried to tell a story that was funny. Whatever. I'm not a cellist. I don't have the sense of music. It's all, it's all my fault that the beginning, beginning song of this is not good. I understand. It's my fault I'm stunted. I don't have appreciation for music. I don't understand it. Fine. What can you do? What am I supposed to do? That's it. What are you going to do? So... I thought that I would, what I would do now is I, I'm trying to prep us all so we can have some audience participation. Once again, you go to the Full Blast podcast on um, Instagram and you could DM me your dilemmas. You could tell, tell me a story, a crazy story. You, if you please write it well, and I'm telling you why. So what I wanted to do, because I'm backfilling before the launch of the Makery Network, I, this is episode three, before we've even launched in January, uh, July, what's the matter with me? June 1st, we're starting, so you'll, you'll, I'm trying to catch up, but I'm trying to backfeed everybody and I want your participation. So what I did was, I did a little feed. I, I asked, I did a little feed. I did a little push. I have a friend who some of you know, and his name is Dave Cardilla. Dave Cardilla is also Damascus Dave and DK Forgeworks on Instagram. I've known Dave for a while. Back when I was at the Center for Mental Arts, he would come in and he was a student of uh, my lead man, John Ledford. And then we became friendly when I went to go to Hammerins. That's a blacksmithing thing, Hammerins or, or bladesmithing thing, when you get together and you kind of forge together. And Dave's fine. Dave's great. I Dave is my friend. He is also an enormous pain in the ass, which is fine. That's who he is. I accept the fact that he's a huge pain in the ass, and he has been and he will be. Fine. He never struck me as telling good stories until this one day. 
you unlocked yourself. He unlocked himself as being a fascinating individual. And I know part of you are saying, I know Dave. Dave isn't that fascinating. He is a huge pain in the ass. When I tell you the story that he sent me, you are going to say, this onion has a lot of layers. There's a lot of layers to Dave's onion. So we were at the, we were at the Hammer Inn. It was at uh, my friend John Ariani's house, uh, Sunset Forge NJ, and I was with my crew, the Modern, Mar- the Modern Forge team. Jesse Savage was there. Uh, Cliff Dufton was there. And we were sitting around. I think we are eating some pizza. And Dave told us this story that was like we all stopped. Number one, we all stopped because Dave is not known for telling stories like this. Number two, it's a crazy story. And number three is I decided I have got to get this story at some point. I've got to get him to read this story or write this story or tell this story because he did a perfect job. So a couple weeks ago, I sent him a message after he sent me these, he sends me these messages. He's, he wants, you know, he got my phone number and he, he wants, yeah, where do you get this? How do you get that? And what is this? He never says, please, it's fine. Dave, I'm with you. And I said to Dave, Dave, I'm doing this new podcast, the um, Full Blast podcast, and I'm going to need a lot of uh, participation. And what I'm hoping for is that you can write this story down. I need to read this story for the podcast. And and at first, he's just like, well, okay. And I was like, yeah, you owe me because you're such a huge pain in the ass. And then as soon as you write the write it, and I'll read it off on the podcast, our debt is wiped clean. Your, 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 our debt of you being a huge pain in the ass is wiped clean. So this is your, your, you've paid your debt to society. I want to read this. I had to, I had to write, I, he wrote this story and I had to edit it. And this is all I edited. I edited out the names because I don't need this kind of heat in my life. I also edited it so it would be read easier. You know, a little, you know, he did a great job. I mean, it's fucking four pages typed. It's a long story. It's a crazy story. It's a long story. I had to edit it for the sake of it had to read well. And that's really it. I didn't change any. I didn't elaborate. I didn't, you know, change any. This is his story. Uh, and um, I want to read the first of our listener stories. And I'm going to start off. This is the story of a young Dave Cordilla, a.k.a. DK Forgeworks, a.k.a. Damascus Dave Here we go. This is in the words of Dave Cardilla. Okay? So like any 16-year-old, I got arrested for selling weed to an undercover cop on school grounds. There you go. Let's just start. This happened because I was an idiot. And because because some kid got caught smoking in the school bathroom and ratted me out, that fucking snitch. So the snitch hadn't been at school for a few days. And I had no idea he got caught smoking in the bathroom. Anyways, school lets out, and I'm walking to the parking lot to my buddy's car, and the snitch is there waiting for me with someone. Yo, Dave, my buddy wants to buy a dime sack. This is the mid-90s where we were mostly smoking shitty weed. So then, at the time, two blunts were in one dime bag. So I look at his friend, and I think... Who is this guy? The snitch was complete white trash. He was a leather jacket and dirty, ripped jeans kind of guy, always wearing a backwards trucker's hat. And his friend was clean cut, wearing a sweater and khakis. They were definitely not friends. So the snitch said, uh, the snitch said that he's from the next town over. This guy's from, his friend is from the next town over. Now I, spend a, now I spend a lot of time in the next town over, and I've never seen him before in my life. So Dave is suspicious of this guy. The friend walks over and says, come on. <laughs> the friend is such a loser. The, fr- the, the friend walks over and says, come on, man. I just want to get high. Can you imagine? Can you imagine a guy come up to you and say, come on, man. He is desperate. Come on, man. I just want to get high. All right, I'll, stop. I'll, I'll keep reading. So fuck it. I only have one bag left on me, and we go to my buddy's car. We do the deal. This friend starts asking me questions like, can you get me some acid? Can you get me a quarter pound? So on and so forth. Right then, I knew I was fucked. I told my buddy whose car we were getting in, let's get out of here now. 
And then my buddy, we take off and he brings me home. And as we're pulling into the driveway, six unmarked police cars were there. They surround us with their guns drawn and the police pulls us both out of the, tr- uh, out of the car and bounce me off the hood of the, of the car for all for a bag of weed. So the police arrived. Dave screwed. All right. They did find a couple of knives on me, cash and some paraphernalia. It's not good. So 16-year-old Dave is in a fucking pickle right now. I got charged with distribution, selling on school grounds, paraphernalia, and two or three weapons charges. The drug, the, the sheriff's drug task force then held me, uh, uh, handed me over to the local town cops who knew me and released me to my mother. Life goes on, and after a stressful year of the court postponing my case, it's now prom time, the jun- time for the junior prom. The morning of the prom, I was getting ready for school. When I got downstairs, my mom and her boyfriend, Jimmy, were sitting in the living room with some dude I did not know. This is unusual because by now, my mom is normally at work, and Jimmy is usually still sleeping, and I do not recognize this guy. While brushing my teeth, it dawned on me that I did know who the guy was in the living room. He was a guy named Louie. And I didn't recognize him because he had shaved his head and beard. So I left the house, stopped at the deli to get some coffee, and went to the school bathroom to smoke some cigarettes with friends before class. And then they let us out early to get ready for the prom. Me and my buddy Jason go to my house. And when we walked in the front door, Louie jumped off the couch, totally nervous and terrified. Now, it's very common that my friends walk into the house all the time whenever they want. My mom usually is cool with that. Mom then asks who else is coming in because she doesn't want Louie to totally freak out. And I'm starting to think this is very, very weird. We walk past mom's bedroom to get to my room and we see a shotgun in the corner. I know my mom's boyfriend, Jimmy, has guns, but he doesn't keep them at our house and things are getting noticeably weirder. This is getting intense, Dave. It's getting intense. My friend Jason, who he arrived with, his twin brother Justin shows up. So Dave and the house are the two twins, and they're weirded out. The next thing you know, Jimmy and another friend, Donnie from the Bronx, shows up. I know this sounds like a shitty mob movie or something, but to give a little bit more perspective, all three of these guys were from various boroughs in New York and have close ties to motorcycle gangs. At the time, we were living 60 miles north of New York City. Louis and Vinny live in the city and have houses in a town 100 miles north. From my bedroom window, you could see the back deck. And Jimmy, Louis, and Donnie were all talking quietly and close with angry faces and a lot of Italian hand gestures. My friends and I thought someone is going to get whacked. You're probably right. Our dates showed up, finally arrived at the house, and Jimmy, Mom, and Donnie left. So it's just me and my friends with our dates and Louie, who seems pretty nervous and jittery. Aside from that, he was nice enough to take pictures for all of us before we left for the prom. Can you imagine this bald-headed, uh, nervous guy is, like, taking pictures of everybody for the prom? It's fantastic. I love That's my favorite part. The prom was nothing special. I had an older friend, uh, older friend driving me and my date in his Volkswagen Scirocco. Uh, I think that's what it is. When, when, and when we stopped at my place to get some clothes and things to go somewhere else for the weekend, we pulled up to the driveway and my mom came out crying and screaming for us to leave right now. And her boyfriend came out of the house, leaned into the window, and said in a very calm and steady, firm tone, you have to leave now. You cannot come in. I was like, okay, okay. something crazy happened. We got to go. And then as we were pulling out, the state troopers pulled in. What the fuck? When we get to the friend's house, I call my house and a state trooper answers the phone and I ask to speak to my mom. When she gets on the phone, she says, I, said, I say to her, mom, what the fuck is going on? And she answers, I can't talk right now. I'll talk to you tomorrow and hangs up. What the fuck? Now, I'm at my friend's house with a terrified prom date whose night is ruined, and any shot I had at getting lucky is over. We'll get back to that. Don't forget, I got to get back to that, Dave. I'm not, we're not, I'm not leaving that one out. I'm getting frantic pages on my beeper. Remember, it's the mid-90s, and my friends, because they see cops all over my house, everyone thinks I killed myself. 
The next morning, I call the house, and again, a state trooper answers the phone. I ask to speak to my mother, and he tells me that um, she's at the trooper barracks and gives me the phone number. When I call the barracks and finally get her on the phone, I say to her, Mom, what the hell is going on? Mom says, well, Louie was binging on cocaine and Jack Daniels for a week and decided that he wanted to die, but he couldn't do it himself. So while he was upstate in his upstate house, he figured he would rob a local bank in broad daylight and die in a shootout with the cops. Needless to say, that didn't happen, but he was caught on camera and everyone saw his face. So we ran and came over to our house to hide. After you, um, after you left for the prom, he got on the phone with someone else. He got really scared and depressed even more. And he went onto the back, back deck and he blew his head off with the shotgun that was in my mother's bedroom. Jimmy and I just got back from the motorcycle ride before you came home from the prom and we found him on the deck. The house is now an FBI crime scene and you can't go in there for a while. The house was trashed from FD, the FBI looking for stolen money and whatever else, and I, whatever else, I guess. So after two weeks, we were back in the house, but things between us were very different and never the same again. But now, to tie back into me getting arrested, Jimmy wouldn't tell the cops and the FBI anything, which was not anything else to begin with, until they dropped all my charges. In the end, I was charged with a misdemeanor weapons charge, and I ended up finding a pair of Saucony running shoes that were Louis, and I wore them for the next year to freak out my friends. Dave Cardilla, everyone. That's a fucking crazy story. God damn it. God damn it. That is a fuck. When you told me that story, Dave, I was like, I cannot believe this is happening to. And then if you compound that with me going to, you know, my. Like, you know, can you call it a fat ass or me being beat up, you know, yelled at by the, the, the football coach and then my cello teacher. Obviously, I had a very different upbringing than that. And that's a crazy story. But there are two things that I want to bring up. And I cannot, I cannot let them go. And I read this letter and I changed, you know, you know I'm going to get a call. You, know, you changed the whole thing. I didn't, I made it readable because there's a lot of, now let me tell you now and now and now and now. Fine. Dave, don't worry, I took care of it. The first thing, all the facts remain very clear. All the facts of what you saw and what you heard are clear. But your interpretation of other people's feelings were completely made up. Number one, be honest. You did not know that that was a undercover police officer who busted you. That's number one. Number one, you did not know. You did. He did not. He did not call in his little microphone. And say, uh, uh, the uh, the suspect has made me. I've been made. You did not know he was an undercover police officer. That's number one. But with peace and love. And number two is you said that you had that any chances you had with your prom date of getting lucky were over. There were no chances. Be honest. There were no chances. There was just no way anything was going to happen. Because I know that you had frosted tip hair. I know that you wore a very tight shell choker around your neck. And I think you listened to Offspring. That poor girl wanted nothing to do with you. And then you have this weird situation with bikers and shotguns and screaming and hollering. You're absolutely right. But I think that if it was the greatest prom of all time, I'm not sure that the results would be different. But thank you very much for this. Our, our, our debt is clear. Our debt is clear, Dave. Dave, you're my guy. We are, our debt is clear, 100%. I'm with you. You're fantastic. This is a great story. And now you, the listener, I want to tell you something. I appreciate you sticking by me. As I told you, this is not meant to be something that you're going to learn from. This is meant to be something that is just in one ear, out through the other. If the, if the Makery Network was a hardware store, you have your different departments, right? You have your, you have your electrical department. You have your, maybe your welding department. Maybe that's what all of those podcasts on this Makery Network are. They're the different departments in the Makery Network. I am the guy, I am the aisle right before you get to checkout with the corn nuts and the beef jerky that you didn't show up to the, the hardware store for in the beginning to begin to begin with but you knew you can't can't leave without it 
So what I want you to do, ladies and gentlemen, I don't think there are going to be any ladies, but fine. We'll get there. Is I want you to go follow me on Instagram at the Full Blast Podcast. I want you to get involved. I want you to leave me your dilemmas. We got a couple of dilemmas coming up next episode. We got a big dilemma. I said something terrible to my grandmother that my family never forgave me for. We're gonna talk about that, and we're gonna read some of your dilemmas, and we're gonna figure this all this goddamn thing out. So thank you so much for for listening to this episode. Thank you so much for sponsoring, for subscribing for being supportive and we're going to start to have more audience participation. We got some dilemmas in the tank that I'm I'm loving, 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 and then we're going to get you squared away. So thank you once again and have whatever. How am I supposed to end this goddamn thing? Am I supposed to say something clever? No. Get off my phone. It's fine. I'm with you. The Full Blast Podcast, you little bastards. If you like this show, take a look at our other shows made for makers just like you at www.makery.network.